And I would invite you this morning to take your Bibles and uh, turn to the book of Job yet again. It's the book that's right before the Psalms. So if you kind of open your Bible open, it typically opens at the Psalms, and then you can go back a few pages. We're going to be in Job 28 today. Job chapter 28. In March of 2013, I submitted a proposal to my committee at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School for my doctoral project. It was a, several weeks later that that project, that proposal got approved, and then I dug in. And I began to build again and sharpen my research. I began to prepare. I had surveys to send out. I was, I was into it. And then in November of that year, November 28th, Thanksgiving night, I said goodbye to my dad for the very last time as he passed away there in West Virginia. For me, it was a very unique moment. You see, it had been a journey of what one would call long grieving. My dad had suffered from a very severe dementia. And for two years, he didn't know my name. He wouldn't recognize my voice the times I would call him. And even when I would be there with him, he wasn't always sure who I was. He knew he should know me. So for me, it was this long grief that was now over. I knew my dad was at home. I knew he was with the Lord. After the funeral and all, we, we came back, and I think part of my managing my own grief was I just dug in even more. I had tasks to do here. Nothing, you know, nothing stopped here, so I'm doing the work that God's called me to do here. And then every, the, the spare moments I had, I was researching, I was reading, I was writing, I was working on that project. In fact, I recall in December of that year of 2013, Charlene and I were at a, a Christmas party that one of her work uh, people has, was putting on, and, and one of her co-workers' husband was uh, an archaeologist, had a, a Ph.D. in archaeology, and when he learned that I was working on my doctoral project, he asked me how the writing was going. And that day, I, I actually turned to him and said, well, today I finished a paragraph. And he turned to my wife and he said, you need to understand what a big deal that is. That is progress. Sometimes getting one paragraph done is enough. Well, I worked a lot on that project. And come late summer, I finally submitted it. So I'd been working on it for almost a year and a half. And I did something the day I sent it in. I went out to my garage. I had several, I had purchased at one of my favorite stores in the area, Owl Hardwood, I had purchased some walnut. You see, at my dad's funeral, I was presented his flag. My dad was a veteran. And as the sole surviving and only son, I was presented that flag. When I got home from the funeral, I put it up in my closet. 
But the day that project was submitted, the day that I submitted it to my committee, I went out to my garage and I made a flag box. It sits in my office today. I made my own flag box and it seemed to me like all of a sudden I had breathed fresh air. There had been closure. There had been completion. And I had that flag box now. I had that memory. And, and it was a very important time. It was like I was refocused. And now I could move on. We come to a chapter in the book of Job that is like that breath of fresh air. It almost doesn't fit. It almost seems out of place in the book of Job. This, this book of Job, uh, this, this chapter, chapter 28, is like swimming underwater and coming up and all of a sudden you breathe air and you're like, oh, I can breathe. Oh, yeah, there is something I can move forward on. And so we're going to take a pause from all of the stuff that's gone forward in Job and we're going to get a breath. From Job, in Job 1 and 2, as we saw all earlier, and we keep referring back to that, we know what happened. We know that there was this situation between God and the accuser, and Job kind of got caught up in that because God knew Job's heart better than Job knew his heart, and he knew what Job could, could manage. And, and, and then Job's friends show up, and, and we were excited. I'm sure Job was excited for a while about that. But then all of a sudden there's these debates. And, and one scholar says Job's three, Job chapters 3 through 27 are a lot of toing and froing. And everybody is talking to everybody, but nobody is really listening. Nobody is engaging. They have their opinions, and Job is defending himself. And it's back and forth and back and forth. And, and it gets exhausting. And if you read Job 3 through 27 in one setting, you will be mentally exhausted. It's like, oh man, would somebody just shut up and listen? And then we hit Job 28. Some people think that Job 28 should be after Job's and Elihu's speeches before God's. Some people think that maybe it's part of Job's final speech. I've, I've kind of taken it where it is. I, I, I'm going to just believe where it is is where it should be for us. It's a, it's a pause. It's a breather. It's a chance just to kind of set it down. It's the intermission, as it were. Oh, we've got two more rounds of speeches to go. One for Job and one for the youngest guy, Elihu. And then we've got God to speak and all. And so we just have this pause. And this pause is very simple and yet profound. And it's a reminder of something that's far more important than all the ranting that's been going on. It's one of those things that everybody reading the book needs to stop and turn their focus toward. It gives us fresh perspective. It kind of puts things in their place. It gives us a chance to rub our spiritual eyes and splash a little water on our face and we have Job 28. Job 28, I, I almost wish you didn't have a heading in your Bible. Because I think it takes away from the surprise of Job 28. 
Uh, Job 28, the writer does what so often wisdom literature writers do, starts with an illustration and builds on it, and then boom, the very end, here's the point. And so let me read just the first 12 verses of Job 28. There is a mine for silver and a place where gold is refined. Iron is taken from the earth and copper smelted from ore. Mortals put an end to the darkness. They search out the furthest recesses for ore in the blackest darkness. Far from human dwellings, they cut a shaft in places untouched by human feet. Far from other people, they dangle and sway. The earth from which food comes is transformed below as by fire. Lapis lazuli comes from its rocks. Its dust contains nuggets of gold. No bird of prey knows that hidden path. No falcon's eye has seen it. Proud beasts do not set foot on it, and no lion prowls there. People assault the flinty rock with their hands, lay bare the roots of the mountains. They tunnel through the rock, their eyes see all its treasures. They search the sources of the rivers and bring light and bring hidden things to light. But where can wisdom be found? Where does understanding dwell? It's very interesting. That question will be asked twice, here in verse 12 and again in verse 20. And as I read and thought about and contemplated this, it struck me that life's core questions are often quite simple. Life's core questions are often quite simple. Think about the core questions. Here's two of them that we're going to explore. I was once told that uh, by someone that we come into this world asking two questions. Am I loved? Will I be able to love? And another time, I, I was, it was boiled down this way for children. Children come into this world saying to their parents, Do you love me? Can I get my own way? And, you know, and, and the first question, am I loved? Yes, in God's eyes, we are loved. God loves us. Even if you don't feel loved, God loves you. And because of that, you can love. And for parents, we need to say to our children, yes, 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 you are loved. You are loved unconditionally. No way can you have your own way. And we have to balance that out. And here, the writer says, where's wisdom found? We haven't seen wisdom from chapters 3 through 27. And the writer is going, okay, wait, wait, wait. And, and some, like I say, some say this is Job. Some may be the person who was kind of recording all this. It doesn't matter. It's a great question. Where's wisdom found? Where does understanding dwell? And so often, when we try to answer those questions on our own, we complicate life. We often ask questions of God that are far beyond our pay grade. We tend to want to know all the ins, all the outs, all the whys, all the wherefores. And maybe, maybe, just maybe, God wants us to slow down, to stop our frantic reality, and just learn the 
freedom of trusting him who knows more than we know. So the writer builds up and gives us 11 verses of searching. And, and, and it's interesting when you look at this and you think about if this was written even in the 6th century B.C., uh, he's still talking about life maybe in the 12th century B.C., and when you look at all that he talks about, you're just amazed at the engineering, at the, the work. And, and as I look at these first 11 verses, I'm reminded of this principle. We will go to great lengths to get what we think is valuable. I have been surrounded by the coal mining industry all of my life. Born in West Virginia, uh, where my mom's brothers are coal miners. My dad is from southeastern Kentucky, where his family is coal miners. I told somebody last week my grandpa drove a 20-mule team back in the day. He was known as the coal man. He would deliver coal to people as well. And so uh, coal mining is something I've just always been aware of. Uh, yes, I know, I grew up in Kansas but every summer we would go back to West Virginia and, and in one way, shape, or form, I would be reminded of the mines. In fact, even my uncles who didn't work in the mines worked for industries that supported the mining industry. I have actually been down into an actual working mine. My uncle took me down once. I was working. I knew I was going to be giving some speeches in college the next the next semester and I, I wanted to give a speech about coal mining and uh, went all the way down into the mine to the, where the continuous miner is. That's as deep as you can go into the mine and saw the, the, the they weren't working that day which is why we could go in and it was just amazing to see the intricacies of the work and to learn how they did things to see the you know you're, you're under this mountain and there's a there's like bolts and those are the things that they stick up into the mountain to hold it up so it doesn't fall down on your head. It was just amazing. And so imagine mining some 3,200 years ago. What would be so valuable that people would devise ways to dig deep into the earth? The writer identifies silver, gold, iron that can be smelted into copper. And then he, this lapis lazuli, and I don't even know if I'm pronouncing that right, but it's a, a very deep blue stone that was very rare and very valuable in that time frame. Highly prized. In fact, there are ancient artifacts that would find that material dating back to 7,000 B.C. So here's the, the writer. He's familiar with this. He's familiar with the smelting of iron, turning it into copper. He describes the depths of these treasures, how deep they go. So deep the eagle hasn't seen it. So deep the falcon can't see it. So deep that they know that the earth is warm down there. It turns to fire. They've been so deep. And they will go to those places where no one else will go. To the roots of the mountain, he says. Why? Because they will go to great lengths 
to get what they think is valuable. We will go to great lengths to get what we think is valuable. And tens and thousands of years later, humanity has not changed. People will do whatever it takes, spend whatever it takes to discover or find what they think is valuable. We will go so far to experience what we think is valuable that, that, there's, that, that we want, we'll pay whatever the price is to get a thrill, to get a rush. Just think about this last year. Between Jeff Bezos and Richard Branson, billions of dollars were spent for four minutes in space. Why? Well, hopefully they want to develop space tourism. Why? So they can make more money, because that's valuable to them. And it doesn't stop there. Spend money to make money. That's the philosophy that you'll see later this afternoon on television. A 30-second advertisement in this year's Super Bowl costs upwards to $7 million. And that's just the airtime, not the time that it took to produce it. Most of us said, give me $7 million, I can retire today. <laughs> you know, it's just more money than you and I can imagine. But it's not just money that's beyond our understanding and experience. We will invest time and energy into hobbies and travel and collections and tools and etc., etc., because we will go to great lengths to get what we think is valuable. And the writer ends this section with the question of the day. After all the effort, after all the life spent in human energy devoted to getting rocks from the ground and, and all the engineering that goes into that and people dangling from ropes into the ground and into these caves, the writer says, after all of this, where can wisdom be found? Where does understanding dwell? And he doesn't answer the question because he does something else. He plays on another very old ancient adage. The adage is that everything has a price if one is willing to pay for it. The darkest part is that every person has a price if you can just determine what it is. The idea that human wealth is capable of acquiring almost anything is alluring. So the writer explores that idea in verses 13 through 19. Let me read them. No mortal comprehends its worth, the worth of wisdom, the worth of understanding. It cannot be found in the land of the living. The deep says, not in me. The sea says, it's not in me. It cannot be bought with the finest gold, nor can its price be weighed out in silver. It cannot be bought with gold of Ophir, the precious onyx, or lapis lazuli. Neither gold nor crystal can compare with it, nor can it be had for jewels of gold. Coral and jasper are not worthy of mention. The price of wisdom is beyond rubies. The topaz of Cush cannot compare with it. It cannot be bought with pure gold. Where? Then does wisdom come from? 
Where does understanding dwell? And I think the point that the writer is making is that it is a false notion to think that wisdom has its price. You cannot put a price tag on true wisdom. In fact, you can't discover true wisdom the way we discover other things. You won't find it in the deep. The deep is understood as the deepest part or lowest part of the sea, of the earth, of the oceans. It's the, it's, it was the thinking was that was the part where the dead finally went to rest. The sea then is what you and I would consider the sea. It's the, it's the part that you can see. It's this parallel idea that wisdom is not found in the unexplored parts of the earth. It's not there. From verses 15 through 19, we have this list of valuable stones and metals from the ancient world. Gold, silver, onyx, again, lapis lazuli, crystal, coral, jasper, rubies, topaz, and the writer even knows the places where they are the best. You know, if you want really, really good refined gold, you go to Ophir. If you want topaz, you go to Cush. It, it, there's nothing that compares to the topaz of Cush. But you can get to all of that, to all of these regions, and, and you're still never going to find wisdom. You, you can amass all of the wealth in the world that you want, and you still won't find wisdom. The point that's being made is there's not enough wealth to buy wisdom because wisdom ain't for sale. It's not a commodity. So where does it come from? Where does understanding live? Do you see what the writer's doing and why we should just erase the heading? Because he's building up a curiosity. So tell me, where does it come from? And the final stanza provides us the answer, but he still doesn't do it immediately. Just a few verses here. Verse 21. It's hidden from the eyes of every living thing, concealed even from the birds in the sky. Destruction and death say only a rumor of it has reached our ears. God understands the way to it. He alone knows where it dwells. For he views the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. When he established the force of the wind and measured out the waters, when he made the decree for rain and the path for the thunderstorms, he looked at wisdom, he appraised it, he confirmed it, he tested it. Wisdom is otherworldly. Birds soaring high above the earth can't see it. The underworld knows that it exists but can't describe it. What the writer is going to leave us with is simply this. There is only, the only true source of wisdom is readily available to all. You see, there is only one source of wisdom, and it's God. And we knew we were going to get here, but the writer wanted us to exhaust all other possibilities, and he keeps with the theme of mining. Notice the idea of testing it and confirming it and appraising it. And, and as we look at this description of God, we, we start to see some of those characteristics of God that we talk about sometimes in theology classes. 
For it says, God understands the way to it, and he alone knows where it dwells. That's the omnipresence of God, the all-presence of God. He alone knows where wisdom is. He views the ends of the earth. He sees everything under the heavens. When he established the force of the wind, just think about that. It, it was a little windy last night. You know, and, and, and wind is this interesting thing. Jesus used it as an example of the Holy Spirit. He said, you can't see the wind. You don't know where it comes from. But you can see the effects. I grew up, as I said, in Kansas. The word Kansas is from an Indian tribe, Kansas. It means land of the south wind. Trust me. It was windy because that wind starts at the Gulf of Mexico, and there is nothing between the Gulf of Mexico and Texas and Oklahoma and Kansas. By the time it got to us, it was blowing good. You can't see the wind. You can see the effects of it. God created the wind. He created the force of it. He measured out the waters. One of the most unique things for anybody to think about is, you know, how does the ocean know where to stop? Well, I know, you can, oh, well, it's the moon and the tides. Yeah, but all of that just kind of had to be put into place. He made a decree for the rain, a path for the thunderstorm. He set up the cycle of evaporation and rain, and he set that all up. He is the designer, the creator. He has all the credentials to determine the location of wisdom. One scholar says he's looked at it as an architect studies a blueprint. He's appraised it. He's documented it. He's examined it. He's confirmed it. He's tested it. Wisdom, the kind of wisdom that God gives, is tested and approved, and it's passed all his stages of approval. So where is it? Oh, we read about it this morning. God says to the human race, verse 28, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to shun evil is understanding. The fear of the Lord, the fear of Adonai. Interesting that Adonai is used here instead of Yahweh. The words are sometimes used interchangeably. But the fear of the Lord, the fear of God, that's wisdom. There it is. The fear of the Lord is a concept that it's often used and not always fully understood. Sometimes we think the fear of the Lord, and we think that kind of fear that evokes flight or, or fight, that we, we just run. And that's not what God's taught, what the, what the scriptures are talking about when we talk the fear of the Lord. It's not like, oh, I'm so afraid of God, I'm going to run. But it's more than just kind of being respectful. Tremper Longman is, is an Old Testament scholar, and he says this about the fear of the Lord. It's most like awe, a kind of knee-knocking fear that one feels in the presence of a vastly more powerful, even though benevolent person. It is the kind of emotion that removes pride and replaces it with humility. When I humble myself before the creator God 
and realize I am the student, not the teacher. I am the creature, not the creator. Then I begin to realize that wisdom is all about making sense of life when I am in dependence upon God. When I'm in dependence of God, then I can start to make sense of life. Couple that closely with the reality to shun evil. It's a it's two-pronged approach. You see, understanding comes when I choose to let nothing come between me and God. You cannot say you have this deep abiding awe of God, this deep respect of God that, that does kind of make you feel like you just went over the top hill of a roller coaster. It's that, that feeling of, whoa, I'm a, I, I, you know, that, that goosebump feeling. You can't say that and then choose to disobey him. You can't do it. The, the, wisdom, the, the fear of the Lord, the, the depth of respect, that awesome, that, as Longman says, that knee-knocking fear goes hand in hand with shunning evil. The Proverbs remind us to fear the Lord is to hate evil, to hate pride, to hate arrogance and evil behavior and perverse speech. The fear of the Lord is this awareness of his constant presence and the awesome reality of who he is, that's where you begin to find wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That's where we learn to live. That's where we discover direction for living. Even when the business of living doesn't make sense. So how does this apply to the book of Job? I mean, I thought the book of Job, Pastor Scott, was about this guy who was going through these struggles and, and, and suffering and, and all. And, and so how does this apply to the book of Job? What, you know, I, I've got my own struggles. I've got my own situations I'm dealing with. What, what, where's the wisdom? What, what is, how, does that, how does that apply? And I'll confess to you, I have been wrestling with that question a whole lot. How, where does Job 28 fit here? I, I will confess. Another time when I taught this, I just kind of skipped over Job 28. I just get to the good stuff. So I have been wrestling and reflecting and praying. And something began to come to mind. I think Job and his friends had some things backwards. And I think that's why this sets here to kind of right the ship a little bit. You see, Job and his friends knew that they should shun evil. That's, you, you can't miss that in Job uh, when the speeches start in chapter 4 after Job's lament. You can't miss the fact that we need to stay away from evil. In fact, what drives them is, Job, you did something wrong and God has given you the smackdown. And you need to confess it so he'll let up. That's the other thing. They were lacking wisdom because they also did not have a complete grasp of the fear of the Lord. They were very, very, very afraid of God. And they were afraid that one wrong step and God would squash them like a bug 
So stay away from evil because God is just waiting to smack you and to squash you like a bug. And Job, you're exhibit A. Yet, Job was different in some respects. He was not afraid of God in the same way, and yet he realized that when his kids had their parties, he needed to go and offer a sacrifice to make sure that, you know, maybe somebody did something wrong. I want them pure before God. Uh, but in his messy faith, as he struggled with his situation, he began to doubt the goodness of God. He had done everything right. He had a good heart. We know that. And yet, here he's suffering. It just doesn't seem fair. And I would submit that both Job and his friends, in their mental image of God, had a caricature of who God was. You know what a caricature is. If you're out on, if we do it, they do a Wheaton Street Fair. Uh, they do some every now and then. And, and you go down and there's somebody there that for, you know, 20 bucks they'll, They'll draw a picture of you, and it's a, it's a caricature. I had a friend who was an artist. I wanted to put together a newsletter for youth and for parents, and I said, you know, would you draw a caricature of me? He did. A caricature just emphasizes certain things. So my caricature had big glasses, a big nose, and big ears. Thank you very much, friend. So that's how you see me, huh? You know, it was a caricature. And that's what we do when we have someone in a caricature. We only emphasize certain aspects. Job's friends emphasize the aspects of a holy and just God who's a consuming fire. And those things aren't wrong, but that's not completely who God is. Job saw those things, but he believed God also was fair and just and, and right. And, and, and he was right, but he was emphasizing the fairness and the justice and the righteousness. Their image of God was incomplete based on their experiences, so much like us. The answer to our question is this. If the fear of the Lord is the beginning of of wisdom, then to fear God, as we've said, is not to run from Him. It's not just to kind of say, oh, I respect God. It literally is to stand in awe of Him. To understand that this all-powerful being who could speak the world into existence is a being that is far greater than I can ever imagine, is, is a, an all-powerful, almighty being who controls everything, who sustains the universe, who holds it together, who keeps it from spinning out of control, is a, a, a being who, the, as we prayed this morning, who can really move the kings of the earth the way he wants, like, like pawns on a chessboard, if you were, is that being, he is in, it, 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 just crazy. He's holy. He, he can't be approached. When those who approached him in the Bible unworthily, they didn't survive. He's that holy. And yet the same God who has all of that is the same God who loved you and me so much, who loves you and me so much, he was willing 
to put his own son on the cross for your sins and for mine. He loves us that much. So he's this awesome God who, yes, my life is in his hands. Or that The preacher that I was supposed to be named after, Jonathan Edwards, preached a, a, a sermon called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And he talked about us being like a spider on a spider web over fire. And he emphasized that holiness and that consuming fire of God. He kind of left out the love part. And, and, and it started what was called the Second Great Awakening. And so we got to realize how awesome God is and yet how loving He is that He knows my name. He knows my name. He knows when I struggle, when I grieve the loss of my granny or my grandpa or my mom or my dad. He grieves with me. And when I don't know how, why, why life is unfair and, and, and how come I don't get a break, he, he gets it, he understands. When I feel alone and I feel abandoned, his son once looked at all his disciples after everybody else left and he said, you don't want to go too, do you? He gets that. He he's was there when his son cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He knows. So here's this great and awesome God who knows the intimacies of my life. He knows where I struggle. And that is the beginning of wisdom. And it is a process. And it is a journey. And there are seasons when we will have a deep sense of the awesomeness of God and find ourselves just enjoying day by day living in dependence of Him. And then, no matter how devout, no matter how religious we think we are, no matter how committed we think we are, we are going to have times when we know we have not shunned evil when we know we have slipped and erred, when we doubt God's care, when we think we can call him and question the events of our lives and think that maybe he took a break on us and he's maybe paying attention somewhere else. And we've got to remember that God in his grace, the awesome God, the holy God, the righteous God, the God who's a consuming fire, is also a God of so much grace and love and mercy that he gives us the leeway to struggle just as he did Job. See, it's one thing to know the truth about God. It's another thing to appropriate the truth and to live it. And God knows we're on a journey. The fear of the Lord, that's wisdom. To shun evil, that's understanding. My prayer as I've gone through this is just like in my own life some eight years ago. Just like what we've seen in Job, that you have times in your life where you, you pause. That you have times in your life where you kind of break the monotony and the routine. Where you step back. Take a breath. Take a breath of fresh divine air. Stop and think about the person of God. 
Think about his majesty. Think about the wonder of God, the mystery of God, the things that you can't figure out about God. Think about the nature of God. And as you reset, refocus on him. And I believe you will discover when you take those times to step back, to pause, to think, to reset, I believe you will discover just a bit more wisdom. And it's going to come not by pursuing the culture, not by pursuing what your mind or emotions tell you to do at the time. It's going to come when you find fulfillment in living in a loving faith relationship with Abba Father. Wisdom can't be bought. Wisdom can't be sold. Wisdom is only found in relationship with our Father through Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this pause in the book of Job. Thank you for this reminder. I get it. It's a lot to take in. I've been wrestling with it for several weeks, and now these folks have just heard it for the first time. So, Holy Spirit, be their teacher. Guide them, direct each one of us. May we learn yet again today what it means to live in loving faith relationship with you and to enjoy the wisdom, the ability to see life as it is that comes only from you. In Jesus' name, amen.